So we're making our way through the month of July through Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament. Today's the last day that we're there. This is just kind of a flyover. Uh, I've said that what I like about this book is it teaches us to enjoy life, not to try to master life. Uh, in a fallen world of exhausting uncertainty, this is a great book to teach us how to fear God by learning how to find contentment in whatever God orders for our life, his providence. And they use that phrase in Ecclesiastes, enjoying life. Another way to think of Ecclesiastes is that it's a book that basically helps us face reality. It just puts reality in our face, stark and contrast, but not leading to despair, but actually knowing how to live with reality rather than to fall for the common temptation of trying to deny or escape reality. Last week I said there are two subjects that Ecclesiastes addresses that more than any other subjects in the whole book, I think prove how naturally we want to escape reality or deny reality. Those two subjects are injustices in the world. We looked at that last week. And the other subject that gets even more attention in the book of Ecclesiastes is the reality of death. And that's what we're going to look at today. In uh, 2008, Julian Barnes wrote a book that became one of the 10 top books uh, that New York Times featured. This is the opening line. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now, first of all, think about this for just a moment. This guy's an atheist who's becoming an agnostic. Uh, he's a British novelist. But first of all, think about the thousands and thousands of books that are, that are written every year that New York Times reviews. And so out of that, they only pick five books of nonfiction, and this was one of them. So an indicator that he really must have pressed a button that people uh, were concerned about. He says in his book, People Say of Death... This is where the title comes from. There's nothing to be frightened of. They say it quickly. They say it casually. Now, let's say it again slowly with re-emphasis. There's nothing to be frightened of. Do you see what he's getting at? This idea that, hey, you just die and that's it. That's a frightening idea to people if they really stop, slow down, and think about it. That's what Julian Barnes is getting at. That's why he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's almost like I really wish he was there. I wish I could believe in him. And then he goes on to say something that, uh, in my mind, I think, he must have read the book of Ecclesiastes. He must really get it. For me, death is the one appalling fact which defines life. Let me just stop there. The one appalling fact, we'll come to that in a minute, which defines life. Unless you are constantly aware of it, you cannot begin to understand what life is about. We live in a world that dismisses death, that actually sentimentalizes it, if it even faces it, and by no means does it constantly stare at it. And as a result, we have a whole bunch of people walking around that are more dead than living. This is the weird, wonderful truth of Ecclesiastes. And that is that you learn to live by preparing to die. You learn to live by preparing to die. In a world of exhausting uncertainty, you embrace the only thing that is certain. You're going to die. 
We live in a world where now is forever. This moment now is forever. Uh, where happiness is the ultimate dream that we chase, that we actually think we can, we can achieve it. And then, and then when we get it, we think we can keep it. And death is the one wonderful reality that keeps reminding us, ain't so, ain't so. In fact, it's the very thing that actually is going to help us live, which is the way I, I'll uh, outline a text that's in your bulletin, but also in your Bible, Ecclesiastes 9. There's a beautiful little pattern here in this chapter that speaks about the one thing that's certain, and then most things in life that are not certain, and right in the middle where the focus is, simple things in life that are, are wise. So let's start with just the first six verses of Ecclesiastes 9. One thing in life that's certain, here it is, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now, whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same events happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. He was joined with all the living as hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. There's a phrase you can use this week. <laughs> for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So he opens this in verse 1 by saying, the righteous and the wise know something. This is one of the blessings of being righteous and wise. The righteous and wise know that all things are in God's hands. And then he has a strange little way of saying something here that admittedly people struggle with knowing what's what how to uh, interpret this where he goes on to say whether it's love or hate man does not know both are before him and the best i would suggest that he's saying here is this the righteous and wise know this they know that ultimately all things are in god's hands but the one thing they don't know like all of us they don't know their future. They don't know their immediate future. They don't know that in front of their life is love or hate, blessing or hardship. They don't know that. So they live with this exhausting uncertainty. And in fact, they learn that despite how you live, there is no certainty that your life will have less suffering than someone else's. And despite how you live, there is an evil in for us all. That's what he's talking about in verse 2. It doesn't matter whether you're a sinner or not. The same evil in is true for everyone. Now, granted, there's some things said in verses 3 through 6. A living dog is better than a dead lion. And we have to understand that the person writing this, perhaps Solomon, the person writing this doesn't know everything we know Hundreds of years later, after Jesus has come, and more light, more word of God has come to the people of God. And so we do know a whole lot more. Nonetheless, 
There is an enduring truth that's said here in these verses that's still just as true today as it ever was. And that enduring truth is something that we need to wake up to. That's what Ecclesiastes says. And, it's a, and I, I'm going to just say it right up front, but I'm going to tell you what I'm about to say it might sound a little foreign to many of you. So don't dismiss me right off the bat. Just hang in there and see if we can't make something of this. I think the wake-up truth here in these first six verses is this. Death is an evil certainty for all of us. It is an evil certainty for all of us. What he says in verses 3 through 6 basically is, one thing we can still say, death is a permanent separation from all that we have known, from all that our only life has known so far. I mean, after all, think about Ecclesiastes. Here's, one, here's the first thought. God has made us as human beings to enjoy life. God's made us to love this life, to enjoy this life, to notice things about it that are sweet and beautiful and, and full of pleasure. So we're meant to enjoy life. And death is not the way it ought to be. From the get-go, death is not the way it ought to be. My father is 96 years old. At the end of May, he came close to dying. My father knows Christ as well as I can tell. And so he's ready. He is ready to die. But nonetheless, just the other day when we were having a conversation about dying, uh, and I pray for my father's death, I pray that it will happen soon, that he won't wither on farther, even though he's still managing and doing okay. But we both agreed to this statement, there's no right time to die. There's just something wrong about it that ought to always be wrong about it, that death is an evil. And what happens, we often do this, unfortunately. One of the things I've noticed about doing funerals over the years is that uh, it seems like we're all trained to know how to say the same thing. We say the same thing, perhaps, at every single funeral. It's almost like someone gave us a vocabulary and we ought not to deviate from it. We have the, we have the theme that, well, they're in a better place. Now, don't misunderstand me. That's a lot of truth to that. But we do have a tendency in the way that we talk about death, the way that we actually do funerals, memorial services, and other things, is we have a way of sentimentalizing what ought not to be sentimentalized. Death is a brutal reality, and it's meant to feel brutal. It's meant to remind us of the horror of sin. It's meant to remind us of the cost of Christ's death that we're going to celebrate in just a few moments, and it's also meant to remind us of the very earthy reality of the resurrection and what that tells us about the future life. And all those things can get minimized and belittled if we're not really staring at death the way we're supposed to. Tish Harrison Warner has written a book called Prayer in the Night, all about grieving and other things. She says, ground zero of our human experience of vulnerability is the fact that we all die. There's nothing that reveals our vulnerability in the fact that every single one of you in this room, including me, we're all going to die. Ourselves and everyone we love. She says, I utterly hate this. She, by the way, is a believer. One thing that draws me to Christianity is that we are allowed to hate death. It is an enemy. 
or the theologian J.I. Packer who recently died and wrote his last book, uh, finishing our course with joy, said this, God seems always to have intended that the life of humans in this world should be probationary and temporary and should lead in due course to some form of transformation and transition for a richer life elsewhere. Yes, there is something good beyond the grave, but listen to his last sentence. And death as we know it, with discernible physical decline, ordinarily preceding it, is no part of God's good creation, but is his judgment on sin as Genesis 3 declares. When Jesus is called in to his friend Lazarus, and gets there too late, somewhat intentionally, and Lazarus dies and he's in the grave. And Mary and Martha come out to him and ask why he wasn't there. And then Jesus approaches uh, the tomb. Twice in John chapter 11 it says, he was deeply troubled. Why does it have to tell us that twice? Why does it have to put that emphasis in? We know the story. We know Jesus is coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why then does it say that Jesus wept? Why does it say twice that he was deeply troubled? And by the way, when Jesus wept, it means he wailed out loud. That's the word there. There's three different words in Greek for, for weeping. And then the word deeply troubled, a better translation of that word is Jesus was outraged. It's the same word used uh, in the other parts of the Greek language for horses and bulls when they snort. What was Jesus outraged about? He wasn't mad at God for allowing Lazarus to die. He wasn't mad at Lazarus saying, well, he got what he deserved. Jesus was outraged at sin. He was outraged at the evil of death. It's not the way it ought to be. And so we can learn to live by preparing to die, by embracing the one thing in life that's certain, by seeing death as the evil enemy it is, here's what happens. It changes us. Yes, it's true. Christ has removed the sting of death. We're going to talk about that in a minute. There is hope beyond the grave because of this table that we celebrate today, the body and blood of Christ. There's hope beyond the grave, but there's still the grave. And as we keep the certainty of that in front of us, it keeps us from wrapping our life around most things in life that are not certain. And that's what verses 11 and 12 are all about. So the, the verses 11 and 12 speak about the most things that we think are certain but really are not. I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, the battle's not to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. Man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in a net or birds caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's the problem with a verse like that. Let's reread it, verse 11. Most of the time the race is to the swift, most of the time, the battle is to the strong. Most of the time, the bread is to the wise. Probability hides us from predictability. Because life tends to work pretty favorably most of the time, if you're born in the right time, to the right people, in the right scenarios, 
We tend to think that, you know, for the most part, life's going to go along. We live as though life is predictable, but it's really not. At any time, at any second, at any moment, before this day is over, your life could radically change in a way that you would never in a million years wish for or dream of. That, we all know that intuitively, don't we? But probability hides this predictability. It insulates us from reality. And what's the message that's coming up over and over and over again in this book? Life is vanity. It's all fleeting. It's all temporal. Everything we grab a hold of is shadows and clouds. There's nothing that will satisfy us here. We either seem to have two things that we do as human beings. We're either escape artists, and we get better and better at it with every generation. We create more and more diversions, more and more pleasures that block out reality. Even though those pleasures repeatedly disappoint us, we turn those pleasures into gods. Those gods repeatedly destroy us, and yet we keep grabbing the new gods that are made every few days or every few years or so. Or the other option, if we're not escape artists, then we're paralyzed by fear and we're basically not living at all because we're so afraid that the sky is falling, which it is, by the way, uh, that we're actually not enjoying all these small little gifts that God has prepared for us to unwrap. Ecclesiastes 7 says it so beautifully, and it's a verse I use oftentimes at funeral services. A good name is, this is verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 7, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Whoa, really? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Why? Because this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Boy, I'll tell you, just go to attend a funeral. I know some of you did recently. It's one of the healthiest things for us. It's just a reminder that everything we grab a hold of has an expiration date on it, including myself in the mirror every morning. It's just something we ought not to get away because it causes the living to take life to heart and really think about what it's all about. So we learn to live by preparing to die, and death can help us. This is what I think death does so well. Death can help us really live by coaching us to savor what will never satisfy us. That's what verses 7 and 10 are all about here. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. Enjoy the grace of God. That's really what this theme keeps popping up over and over in Ecclesiastes. These moments at verse 7 says, um, these moments when God approves of what you do. In other words, when God's favor's on you, when God's grace is on you, enjoy those moments, those undeserved favors in a fallen world. And verse 8 speaks about white garments and oil. Those are simply people wore white garments in a, in a Middle Eastern culture because they protected them from the heat of the sun. Oil was a way to keep their skin from drying up. These were ways that basically take care of yourself. Yes, the Bible actually says to put oil on your skin. Isn't that amazing? Um, so I... 
I love the title of his book, and D. Wilson has a book called Death by Living. And, it, and he gives an example of what does it mean to enjoy life. Here's, here's a list to spark your imagination. Ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until they make you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, shape someone else's life by laying down your own. This is really a form of Christian hedonism, if I can put it that way. But here's what's different. We're not making gods out of the gifts. We're enjoying gifts from God, however long they last. And God can take them away anytime he wants to because we're savoring them, knowing they'll never satisfy us because everything has an expiration date on it. I don't know who said this, but I think it's brilliant. You can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. So leverage the evil of death to savor what can never satisfy. Two more things. I want to say a word to the young and to the aging, because Ecclesiastes takes this very thought about death and applies it to both the young and to the aging. And you heard Lindsay read that passage from Ecclesiastes 11. Uh, and in verses 8 through 10, it speaks to the young and basically says, youth is fleeting. You're not going to be young forever. I don't care if the 40 is the new 50. The point is, it eventually, it isn't the new anything. Uh, youth is fleeting and darkness is coming. And there's too many days of darkness. So verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 11 Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know for all that these things God will bring you to judgment. Now, this isn't, all right, go out, have your way, but just remember, this is not party responsibly. That's not what verse 9 is saying. He's saying, enjoy your youth as a gift. Don't idolize it. Please don't idolize it. Otherwise, you will grow old and grumpy. It's the case that in almost every survey that I've seen over the last few decades, when they say, who's the angriest group of people in the population? It's almost always people that are over 60. They're the angriest people uh, in, in society. Life has screwed me over. That's, what they, that's their attitude. Life has screwed me over. Or uh, people have screwed over our country. But what really has happened is they've fallen for the serpent's promise that there's a better paradise than the one God has offered to you. And it's here. They've forgotten Ecclesiastes. So, walk, so for the young... Walk with your heart and your eyes. In other words, navigate your way through this precious, short phase of life called youth. And here's one tip that I would give you that I think Ecclesiastes implies. If you're young, make sure you have older friends. If you're young, make sure you have older friends. 
I don't mean just 10 years older, but maybe 30 years older, maybe 60 years older. Let them coach you to what verse 1 of chapter 12 says. Remember also your creator in your youth. The idea here captured so well by an uh, old dead guy, a French author named Jacques Ellul, who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says, all the evils, all the evils, he says, and I choose my words carefully, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. So when you're young, you think you're the creator without even realizing you subconsciously live as though you're invincible. Get some older friends who will wonderfully and gently remind you that you are a creature under the mercy and goodness of the gift of youth from your creator. Now to the aging, I will say this. These metaphors that get piled up, Lindsay read all those metaphors for us of all these different ways in chapter 12, verse 2, all the way to the end of describing what it's like to grow old. They're beautiful metaphors if you, if you find out what each one of them mean. They're, 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 uh, they're beautiful, but they're heart-rendering. They're quite sad in terms of what they describe of aging. And most of us are going to grow old. Uh, even though Billy Joel said only the good die young, which is a stupid song, by the way. Um, it's not true. Um, but most of us will grow old, and as many of you have said who are older than me, those last years are not for sissies. So get ready for them. It's the unmaking of creation as your body literally evaporates over the years and your life becomes an increasingly smaller and smaller jail cell. There's no easy way to talk about it. David Gibson, whose beautiful book on Ecclesiastes, says this, Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to live shaped by death. It is bracingly realistic about the agonies of aging and dying, but its realism does not go hand in hand with despair. So this is the beauty of aging in the midst of the ugliness of aging. Ask yourself these questions even before you get to that point. In this broken world, what have you enjoyed from God in your lot in life? What have you enjoyed from God in your lot in life? What sacrifices have you made? What Jesus choices? By that I mean sometimes you've chosen Jesus when it really hasn't gone well for you. You've chosen Jesus when no one else is choosing Jesus. What are those choices that you've made that are like seeds in the ground that you can entrust to your faithful creator? How has God kept you faithful? How have you seen his promise become the only certainty in a world of exhausting uncertainty? Someone has said that if you live this way, they will be like pictures hanging on the walls of your heart to look at in the years when you sit in the shadows of aging. We have a wall in our house of pictures. Sometimes just great to sit there and look at those things. Just of flashes of memories, moments of paradise. That's what you have as you watch, as you enjoy life and savor those things and collect them and relive them. Aging is agonizing, but there's also the promise of something else that happens to the person who knows Christ as they age. Psalm 92 captures it beautifully. 
The righteous flourish like the palm tree. Palm tree is one of the most enduring trees on the planet. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon, one of the most stately, majestic, huge trees. By the way, earlier in Psalm 92, it compares the wicked to the grass that fades overnight. But here's someone who's lived to old age, and they're like a cedar compared to the grass. Why are they that way? Because they have been transplanted. They've been taken out of the lifeless desert. Every convert is a transplanted tree. Every one of us are born like a dead branch, neglected out in the desert. And God takes that dead branch, and he plants it in the river of Christ, and we begin to grow. That's a picture of conversion. We are transplanted into the house of the Lord, and as a result, we flourish. Even in our old age, we're still going to be sappy. That's the idea here. We are still going to have something inside of us to declare that the Lord is upright. With whatever breath I have, my body might be betraying me right, right now. It might be getting in the way. I might be like a bird who's had, who has enormously strong wings and I can't wait to sh shed this tent. But in the midst of it all, I can say God has been my rock and there's not a single drop of unrighteousness in him. And when you say that in your old age, when your body's betraying you, and everything you've enjoyed in life is no longer enjoyable, and you say that when your life has become a prison cell that's shrinking, and those words come out of your mouth, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a powerful, powerful beam of light in a world that is so dark and hates God because God doesn't serve our every want and need. So, this table in front of us, the Lord's table, communion. Interestingly, this is a place where, as we come to take the body and blood, the horrors of death and the hope of the end of it come together. So before I share about that, I'm going to ask the guys to come forward who are serving in the worship team. And as always, I invite anybody here who knows Jesus as their Savior and as their King. This is the place where we celebrate our forgiveness. This is the place where we, we come. And you're welcome to come down the center aisle, get the bread and cup, and then I'll lead us all in a few moments taking it together. At the end of uh, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 9, uh, he says, there's no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in the grave. Remember I said earlier, here's someone who doesn't yet know everything that we know in the New Testament. Now we do know this, they knew there was some kind of life after death because Hebrews 11 says that all of these Old Testament believers they were seeking a better country, it says. So they knew there was some kind of better country than the country here. They knew they were exiles here. But what they didn't know was the new covenant. What they didn't know was the certainty of grace secured for them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One old timer named John Owen wrote a little book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. The very Christ who wept at Lazarus' tomb in outrage is also the one who was nailed on a cross and crushed the head of the serpent who brought death into this world. 
He removed the sting. His payment is certainty that we won't spend forever and ever and ever paying for what we could never pay for. The Bible calls that hell. His physical resurrection pushes back the scary unknown of death for us. It's the beginning of all things being made new. So as we constantly live with the reality of dying in front of us, we will recognize the other side. We sang about it this morning on our opening song, by the way. It says that Jesus saw the other side. This is what happens if when you're young, you remember your creator and that life is full of expiration dates, that it's vanity, it's fleeting. You'll begin to live for the other side and you'll begin to see the other side poking through in those few moments when you're enjoying life. And then when you do enter aging, you'll become so experienced at seeing the other side that you'll be able to see the joy set before you despite the agony of dying that you have to go through. I think it's beautifully captured in C.S. Lewis's uh, children's series, Chronicles of Narnia, the book, The Last Battle. And I'll close with this. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. So come further up, come further in. That's what those samples of heaven invite us to do. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your kindness to us in the body and blood of Christ. Ah, oh, the end of death, a world in which we will never know the horrors of death ever again. A world we could never get to by our own death, but we can because of Christ's death and a resurrection as the down payment and proof positive that it is more real than this world of vanity that we live in now. We come.